0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Regional Access. Regional Access is a regional distributor committed to creating sustainable economies throughout the Northeast. For more information, visit regionalaccess.net. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All
2: right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza on a lovely day here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we're going to be chatting a little bit about what's been at the forefront of a lot of people's minds over the last couple of weeks, years really. The Farm, re- or, sorry, the farm Report, that's my show, The Farm Bill. Um, with a focus uh, in particular today, we're going to be looking at dairy and dairy markets. And we're joined by our expert guest, Andrew Novakovich, uh, who's a professor of agricultural economics up at Cornell University. Andrew, thanks for making time to chat with us today.
3: Hey, it's my pleasure, and Good to visit with you.
2: Well, I want to start at a a pretty basic um, space um, with uh, a question that might come as a little bit of a surprise, but when we're talking about dairy farmers, I just want to be clear who is and maybe who isn't included in that group.
3: Uh, There's the definition is uh, pretty expansive, probably uh, what what most people would imagine. If you are in the business of commercially selling milk uh, and receiving a, a check from somebody else to do that, uh, you're definitely going to be a dairy farmer. Needless to say, though, when they write the rules, they use different language, but that's pretty much what it boils down to. Um, you know, if, if you're... You know, you got a place out in the country and you got a cow and you milk it from time to time or you use it in a show, uh, but you're not really commercially selling milk. Uh, this program isn't going to do anything for you, but it's, it's not very restrictive. It's trying, kind of, I think what you would normally imagine would be the case for somebody who's trying to make a living, uh, milking cows.
2: And is it it's specific to cows? So doesn't include, uh, you know, goats or, or sheep or other milk producing animals. Oh yeah,
3: very, yeah, uh, very very sensible question. It does not. This is a this is a cow program.
2: Got it. So, um, also kind of keeping things a little general before we tuck in, in as we're looking at kind of the scope of the things that the farm bill covers. Maybe you can give us in broad strokes what are some of the main areas within the bill that are that are going to have an impact. On on dairy farmers that are kind of the traditional things that you're going to see from year to year.
3: Uh, dairy programs, uh, federal dairy programs, consist or have consisted of three big economic price kind of oriented programs, and then uh, several other things that are uh, important but uh, in a of a different nature, different scale. Um, One of the uh, longstanding, in fact, the oldest uh, of these federal price-related programs is the milk marketing order program, kind of a complicated program, uh, very pervasive in the U.S. And uh, the Agricultural Act of 2014 basically doesn't do anything with that program. Um, uh, Pretty much leaves it exactly as it is, doesn't touch it. Uh, there's not federal money involved. There's no subsidies involved. It's a, more of a regulatory program. The other two, however, though, were completely tossed in the dustbin and replaced with two new things, uh, one really big new thing and one smaller new thing. Uh, the the two that were eliminated uh, were called the Dairy Price Support Program, and the milk income loss contractor or MILC or sometimes called milk program the the price support program was pretty dormant uh but the MILC program uh was fairly active and under that program certain farmers on certain volumes of milk could get a check from the United States Treasury when times were bad under the new scheme uh, there's something called the margin protection plan And when times are bad, certain farmers on certain volumes of milk will get a check from the U.S. Treasury. So in that sense, it's kind of similar. But the big difference is the events, the the actions, the the thing that occurs that decides whether or not it's a bad time has been redefined. And it's going to be, I think, a much better match with the kind of economic environment farmers are in than was the case when the MILC program was written. And the second thing is, a lot more farmers and a lot more milk is going to be eligible for this margin protection plan than than was true uh, for MILC. So the new program will uh, pay more and and pay more broadly, pay better and pay more broadly than the old program. Uh, The other uh, piece, which I characterize as kind of smaller, is something called the dairy product donation program uh... and this would be uh... uh an, it's kind of an augmentation to the, the uh, margin protection plan that says if it gets really bad then we're gonna tell usda to go out and kind of shore up the market by buying certain dairy products for use in food assistance food donation programs uh, again, that only kicks in when when the, when the market situation is especially bleak, which may not happen at all in the next five years. So that's why I characterize it as kind of a smaller component of this new two-part plan.
2: Got it. So thinking about kind of the dairy industry as a whole in the U.S., maybe you can um, kind of bring us up to speed on, on – on the state of things, um, you know, I feel like what we've been hearing here at the network and um, I think, you know, more from maybe New York state farmers that there's a, kind of a, a push towards consolidation uh, that dairy farms on the whole are, are getting larger in the number of, uh, you know, heads that heads per farm that they're milking. And my basic understanding is that kind of the major dairy producing states are like California, Wisconsin, Colorado, and maybe New York is somewhere in the top 10. But maybe you can give us a little bit of a, of a lay of the land, so to speak, with regards to kind of average farm size and what we might see if we were kind of taking a, a trip across the country, how the, how the dairy world might look differently as we're moving from, you know, the East Coast to the West Coast.
3: You know, uh, uh, agriculture in general, dairy agriculture in particular, uh, doesn't have, you know, kind of the uh, exciting changes that you think about when you think about, you know, plasma TVs and telecommunication and uh, what the latest uh, phone in your pocket is like. But it's been uh, particularly dynamic recently. Uh, and for dairy, that's, uh, that's kind of new. Uh, if you go back uh, 20, 30, 40 years, uh dairy farming was kind of a, a boring story. It was uh, uh, lots of smaller s- farms uh, that, you know, not that big of a difference in size from the smallest to the biggest. There farms all over the United States. Every state has a dairy industry. Not a lot of risk in dairy farming. You know, bad things can happen. but. You, you don't have the risk with weather like you do if you're growing a crop and uh, and returns to farmers so you know there was a little up a little down a good year uh, not so good year but um, not dramatic swings in fact uh, that was kind of thought of as dairy's big advantage you, you wouldn't make a lot of money as a dairy farmer but there wasn't much risk and that's you know usually how the risk reward trade-off works there certainly were trends that go back for a century where milk yields continuously increase. In fact, uh, if you plotted them on a graph, it's almost like a straight line upward. And um, part of the flip side of that coin is uh, you know, farms. The number of farms would decline. The number of cows would decline. The average size farm would get bigger. And there was uh, definitely a trend, but not one that you'd look at and say, "Oh my gosh, this is uh, alarming. This is uh, horrible." And by contrast to other parts of the livestock industry, like poultry or or beef, the changes were barely perceptible. Uh, Nothing at all like the big integration in the poultry barns and the gigantic feedlots that we saw in in the beef industry. The story in the last 10 to 20 years is quite different. Uh, We're seeing um, an acceleration in the reduction of the number of farms uh, we're seeing uh, an acceleration, not only in the average size of farms, but what defines what a big farm is. I mean, we used to think if uh, you had a thousand cows that you were milking, that oh my gosh, that's a that's a big farm. And this is of course back when the average size farm was maybe fifty or sixty. Today, the average size farm is something like one hundred and twenty. But a 10,000-cow farm is not really all that unusual. I mean, there's certainly not a lot of them, but on the other hand, um, nobody is flabbergasted if, uh, if you're told that there's a 10,000-cow farm uh, down the street. In fact, probably the largest single farm with all the cows in one place is a farm in Oregon that has uh, over 30,000.
1: Wow. And there
3: are quite a quite a number of farm businesses where the owners, uh, sometimes it's a family, sometimes it's a group of families, own 50, 60, 70,000 animals by themselves. They don't have them all in one place. But, uh, you know, if you look at their entire business, they, they've got an, uh, an amazing number of, of, of cattle. So, you know, our whole notion of what is a dairy farm is, is really Uh, dramatically, uh, evolved over the last few years. Uh, every state in the U.S. continues to have dairy farms, but, uh, it's by no means homogeneous. Uh, the southeast, where it's wet and hot, isn't a great place to milk cows, and they've declined dramatically. Uh, east of the Hudson River, well, actually, kind of east of central New York, uh, has declined. A lot. Uh, even Vermont, uh, is still an important dairy state, uh, has been uh, struggling. Um, uh, there's been a lot of growth uh, in the western United States and, and even the arid southwestern. Uh, Texas Panhandle, New Mexico, Arizona, Central California, uh, Idaho have been big growth areas. But if you if you look at county-level data to get a little more granular feel of it, What's happening is throughout the country, there are hotspots where uh, in areas generally smaller than a state, the dairy industry is absolutely flourishing, it's thriving, looking great, and then other parts where it's vacating. So, for example, if we look at the Northeast, things on a state-by-state basis, there's no state that looks like it's doing great, but if you look at at the county level, Western New York is as much a hot spot as any of the best places in the United States. It's one of the hot spots of the planet, but East Eastern New York and, and uh, New England and Northern Pennsylvania don't look particularly good. Um, South Eastern Pennsylvania, Lancaster County, is one of the uh, best milk producing areas in the region, but they've kind of tapered off. Uh, and so, Western New York, in particular, stands out as, as a real hotspot. And there's a few. Uh, there's probably uh, ten or twelve are sprinkled around the United States of these intensifying hotspots. And that's that's kind of a new new phenomenon for dairy.
2: And what about with regards to just kind of sheer volume of of milk that we're producing? I mean, has that seen an increase, a decrease, has it held steady? As like the landscape of the farm kind of size and composition has
3: changed? Actually, uh, 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 milk production in total uh, has increased almost on a straight line uh, for the last 50, 60, 70 years. Um, uh, In fact, uh, since 1996, uh, if I plotted that graph up for you, It would look uh, very much like a straight line, uh, that has a slope of about, uh, a little over 2 billion pounds of milk a year. We measure volumes of milk by pounds. And, uh, 2012 was the first year we went over 200. So we're talking, you know, in the vicinity of 1% a year. Uh, this, um, parallels population growth. So basically what's happening is production is kind of growing in proportion to demand. Um, And um, that relationship has been very, very stable. So there's all kinds of action on individual farms, but if you look at the total industry, uh, it's almost a straight trend line.
2: Interesting. So, well, I'm I'm sorry, it's just like kind of... uh it's like so fascinating to me like so mil- like in general um the milk that we're producing i also can can you give me a sense like how do we categorize milk like after it comes out out of the cow and i'm just i'm curious too if that like how how that plays out i mean because i've heard you know, Wisconsin or California that most of the milk doesn't go into fluid milk, but goes into cheese production. Is there a similar like uh, a mix across the country? or Are we seeing that certain areas are like, or counties, I guess, if that's the best way to look at them are, are being kind of identified towards certain types of, of production where the milk is being used for yogurt or, or cheese or other dairy products? Or is it usually kind of a mix within a county?
3: Well, actually, uh, when you look at regions of the U.S., the mix of, of dairy foods production, how you use milk is, is really different. Uh, again, you know, just about every dairy product is produced at some level in every dairy state. But when you look at the relative proportions, it's, it's really quite dramatically different. And, uh, actually in, in ways that, uh, you know, make a lot of sense once you kind of think about the underlying factors. So, one of the uh, sort of thumb rules in the dairy business is if you're making beverage milk products, you know, gallon jugs and, and pints of cream and everything that we think of as a, as a drinkable uh, fluid milk type product, you don't want to move that stuff very far. You don't want to package that in California and send it to St. Louis. You want to keep that local because it's very expensive. Uh, that you know milk is is mostly water it's 98 per, or excuse me 88% water and it just doesn't make sense to be shipping that long distances so if you're in the southeast where you don't have a lot of local milk production relative to a very large population you have a very big fluid milk industry they use pretty much all of their local milk supply for beverages and they use a little bit for ice cream and some other things, but it's a very strong fluid market, and you don't make cheese there, you don't make butter there in any you know, appreciable quantity. If you go out to Idaho, which is a, a, a large dairy state, it's basically tied with New York for third largest state in the country, you got a whole lot of cows and you got hardly any people. And so sure, you know, you've got some beverage milk there, but if you did that alone, you you could, you'd have to, you'd have to shut down most of the farms. There's just not that many people in the state of Idaho. And so Idaho is a gigantic cheese producing state, one of the largest cheese producing states, uh, uh, on the continent. And that's because cheese is very storable. Cheese is very easy to transport. And uh, it doesn't matter. You can sell cheese made in Idaho anywhere in the continent and be competitive. Um, some of our states um, could, you know, do different things, but kind of develop sort of a culture. So, for example, Wisconsin, uh, which has a strong northern European heritage, uh, has uh, long had uh, a, a very large uh, cheese industry. It is, in fact, uh, the largest cheese-producing state in the country's second-largest milk-producing state. Uh, and, you know, there's a pretty good food milk business there. You've got Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago. These are, are large cities, and they get their share of the milk supply. But Wisconsin tends to um, emphasize uh, cheese production, and it's very proud of their cheese industry. New York uh, and uh, uh, Vermont, uh, to a, a somewhat similar extent, historically had a very um, large and proud cheese industry as well, but they've found over time that it's been a little bit less competitive for them to be making cheese. And what we've emphasized is um, increasingly is what's called soft products uh, that kind of occupy a space in between fluid milk and cheese in terms of value. So right now the big one is yogurt, but this would also include cottage cheese, sour cream, cream cheese, um, uh, uh, products that, you know, you think about as uh, being a little more fragile, uh, requiring refrigeration, not so easy to move, uh, and uh, probably a little higher marking product. Uh, Of course, yogurt is the poster child for that category of uh, products right now. But uh, historically, uh, we've been one of the biggest ice cream producing uh, regions in, in the U.S., and so the Northeast industry tends to tilt a little bit more in that direction. So each, each region, for a lot of sensible reasons, has a little different mix uh, of uh, dairy foods processing. In the main, they all carry their own weight. But, you know, there's different times when the cheese industry is doing really good and then not so good. And, of course, we've got this yogurt explosion now, which is very exciting for us. And other parts of the country don't have that at all. So there's, there's some moving parts in that dairy foods industry.
2: And with regards to kind of where the milk is going, I mean, obviously, it's moving around the U.S., but if we're looking at uh, kind of exporting of milk, you know, that would be, I'm assuming, as as a cheese or a milk powder. Is that a a big product of the U.S., or does most of the milk we're producing stay in in the U.S.?
3: That's actually a very exciting story for the U.S. dairy industry since we negotiated the the so-called Uruguay Around Trade Agreements that gave us the WTO. Uh, That agreement was signed in 1996. And if you look at uh, various different measures of what's going on in the dairy industry, you can see perceptible kinks in the lines right around 1996. It it moved the needle, if you will. Now, some, uh, right now, uh, roughly 15% of the milk produced in the U.S. is, Uh, sold overseas in some dairy product form. But uh, the way uh, a particular dairy food industry participates in that is really different. Uh, Fluid milk products, beverage milk products, for example, are almost a non-tradable good. The the, the, uh, international trade in beverage milk products is close to zero. Uh, Canada doesn't need it. Uh, Mexico, by and large, doesn't need it and doesn't want it. Uh, so, and, you know, you're not going to send half pints of whole milk to schools in Japan. So uh, fluid milk becomes a non-tradable good. Cheese, um, a high-value good that we're pretty proud of, um, is, is a possibility. But we've got a lot of competition. Europe has an outstanding reputation as a cheesemaker. Um, Australia does a pretty good job of making cheese. So our market penetration on cheese, every possible kind of cheese, is somewhere around 6% now. Uh, it's, it's something that people in the cheese business are excited about because it's kind of a new thing for them, but uh, in total volume, it's still pretty small. But if you look at, there's a class of dairy products that we don't think of as a consumer product. You don't go to the grocery store to buy it, but it's very useful in food processing, food manufacturing, baking, and these are uh, what the industry generally refers to as powders. So you can have skim milk powder, non nonfat dry milk powder. You can have dry whey, which is a byproduct from cheesemaking. It's a high-protein product. You can have dry lactose, which is the sugar that comes from milk. Uh, those dried ingredients are uh, um, very useful in a variety of food preparations, and we export uh, between... 60 and 75% of what we produce in that category of food products, they're, they're absolutely gigantic uh, for people in those industries as, as an outlet for sales and has really revitalized uh, that market. Uh, butter kind of occupies the space in between. We, we do more with butter than we do with cheese, but not as much as we do with these powders.
2: So I have one more question, then we're going to take a short break, and this is something I, I wish I had asked earlier. But um, just with regards to kind of volume of production, I'm curious if you can give us a sense of are we seeing a shift in the amount of milk we're getting per cow over, over time, and have there been kind of uh, jumps in that space?
3: Um, uh, production per cow is uh, actually even more of a straight line than um, – uh total milk we have had persistent increases predictable annual increases in yield going back uh the same trend line to 1953 uh there was actually an acceleration in in yield uh during the 1950s that traces to some pretty fundamental animal husbandry ch- techniques uh, we use artificial insemination to improve the uh, genetic quality of of the next generation of cows that were coming along. We did improvements in how we feed them. Uh, we did improvements in health care programs. And all of that has continued at a persistent, linear pace uh, that's really pretty, pretty uh, admirable. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge success story for the dairy industry, and that's across the board. Uh, certainly not every farmer has the same uh, performance in, in yield as every other farmer, but uh, every farmer has been, all the boats have been rising on that tide. Every farm continues to show improvement year after year.
2: Well, Andrew, thanks so much. We're going to take just a, a quick break when we come back. As I promised at the top of the show, now that we have the lay of the land, I want to tuck into a little bit of uh, your response to the farm bill that is on its way to the president's desk. So hang tight, folks. We'll be back in just a moment.
3: Listening to Running Like a Ghost by Shadowbox on Heritage Radio Network.org.
1: And I run away from me. It was all a blur. It was all a mess with And they managed. Today's program is brought to you by Regional Access. Regional Access is a regional distributor committed to creating sustainable economies throughout the Northeast. This community-oriented company was built on a vision of providing ecologically responsible and ethically produced food to area consumers. During a typical week at the Regional Access warehouse, they help move thousands of pounds of natural and grass-fed meat, gallons of farm-fresh dairy, and tons of organic and specialty foods from producer to market. Having been in the distribution business for almost 25 years, Regional Access's experience and knowledge make them uniquely equipped to build out their region's food web. Up in the Finger Lakes, Regional Access will continue to champion the region's bounty and work toward a sustainable food system for the entire Northeast. For more information, visit regionalaccess.net. Hello.
2: All right, we're back. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and we're on the line with Andrew Novakovich, and we're talking about uh, the impact of the Farm Bill and getting a little bit of a lay of the land as it relates to dairy farmers. And so I want to jump right in, um, you know, in in kind of uh, our email exchange. You, you had mentioned that you thought the, the dairy change was maybe larger in, in this round of the Farm Bill than what other farmers might be experiencing, and I wonder if you can kind of elaborate on that a bit.
3: Yeah, well, um, you know, in some ways, you kind of got a look at all the things that uh, occurred and transpired to get us where we were. The the the, the, the farm bill path was a pretty tortuous one, and really uh, is at least a three year path. You know, you've always got advocacy groups that are getting ready and working in the background, trying to get stuff going before Congress really starts to to show much, and the Congress guy's got stuff in the background before it becomes, you know, something that you're publicly aware of, but this one is unusually long in terms of its gestation period, and sometimes these farm bills, which we do roughly every five years, are boring, and you know they're going to be boring. There's just not a big (laughs) issue going on. And, you know, it's a tweak and stuff, and the money's not a problem. And, and you just know, okay, this isn't going to be especially exciting. This was definitely one of the more exciting ones. And it was exciting for kind of predictable internal reasons, that it was just sort of kind of time in the life cycle of the bill that we did something a little bit more dramatic. And then you got the whole dysfunctional Congress thing going on that just added way more to the... To the drama of of trying to come up with an agreement, uh, as you know, and, and as you and I have talked about before, the, the food stamp thing was gigantic, and, uh, and a huge debate. Although what they came up with was just dramatically less than than what we might have uh, feared. Um, but the agricultural programs uh, went through some pretty pretty meaningful changes. The dairy program is almost a complete rewrite. The, the other crops programs. Uh, had some pretty um, pretty significant changes. Um, the farm bill involves things like energy conservation, trade, rural development, um, credit. Uh, there's uh, a number of things uh, in that bill that don't get the limelight, and in in a lot of those, uh, there were kind of small but actually uh, fairly important uh, changes and improvements that. Uh, probably, you know, aren't going to get a whole lot of public attention, but if you're in the conservation community, uh, they're pretty interesting and, and, and by and large uh, pretty useful. In um, uh, the energy area, the ag the farm bill doesn't certainly have a domain on all of energy policy, but, uh, you know, the corn for fuel and the food for fuel thing is something that they're concerned about, and so they, they've got a little language in there that's trying to uh, create a little more life for the use of uh, agricultural materials that are not food uh, to be uh, a source of energy. And uh, that's, you know, they got a lot of uh, technology and economics to work on that, but the bill made some positive investments. So it, there, there's, uh, there's a lot of things going on. The dairy story provided some drama at the end, more for political reasons, but there's... there's uh, a, a lot in this bill that um, uh, may not be as revolutionary a change as some people would want, but I'd say it's moving in the right direction.
2: Um, yeah, no, I, that's what you had said, that, you you know, you thought overall that it was a pretty good deal, even for larger farmers who might pay more. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that gets, like, sorted out in the real world. And I'm I'm wondering if you can kind of tell me what, what you meant by that, sorting out in, in the real world. What, what? What would happen in that space? How, how would that look?
3: Well, uh, there's a couple things. Uh, one is, uh, you know, it's, it's just human nature to be a little skeptical of these programs. Uh, and, you know, people that have been living these programs and maybe they were the ones responsible for designing them can get pretty wrapped up in thinking, hey, this is a pretty sweet deal. Boy, you know, farmers are going to really use this a lot. And the fact of the matter is, Almost no farmer pays attention to the farm bill until they've got some kind of sign up decision that they've got to confront and then they start thinking about it. And they, they they weren't with you all the way and getting all excited about this bill. They just say, Okay, you know, what's what do you got on the table for me and what do I need to do and how do I sign up and what's it gonna cost me and what's the possible benefit? And uh you know, even though farmers have been participating in programs for, you know, generations, uh, anytime you come up with a new one, uh, there's there's going to be a certain amount of caution uh, and, uh, I think, an innate skepticism. So when we look at something like this dairy program, a lot of folks would say, oh, this is a pretty good deal. Uh, doesn't mean dairy farmers are going to necessarily see it that way, and, and so the sign-up, Maybe be a little more cautious the first year because uh, let's let somebody else be the pioneer and figure out how this is going to work. And if they have a good experience, you know, then I'll think about it. Uh, the other thing is uh, uh, almost all of these kinds of programs, and certainly the new dairy program, have alternatives. Uh, uh, there are risks in dairy farming that we never imagined 10 years ago, and this program is going to help with that risk. But there are other risk management tools available to farmers. And uh, while this one seems to be, the new one, seems to be very attractively priced, it's possible that uh, a farmer may say, yeah, well, you know, but actually I'd really rather do this. I've I've used this other thing before, and I like it, and I think it's flexible, and, you know, whatever the reasons might be. So uh, we don't know uh, how much switching there might be from, farms that have been using other tools to pick up this new one, you know, apart from any in skepticism that might occur.
2: Right, so it'll kind of like, hurry up and wait, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs>
3: yeah, 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 and uh, you know, uh, sometimes you look at something and you say, man, this thing's never gonna get off the beach, Wilder. But uh, this program clearly uh, has potential, but it may take a couple years before it really achieves that potential.
2: Um, well, we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you kind of as we close out, you know, in an ideal world, you know, magic wand kind of situation, I'm curious, you know, how do you think that that pu- public policy really should be shaping these kind of market economics? Like what what's like the ideal state uh, of that space?
3: Well, of course, everybody will have a little different idea about that. But I, I would say there's a couple of things here. One is you know less than 1% of the united states population is actually engaged in agriculture actually knows what it's like to grow a crop or to raise an animal and uh, you know i uh, in my own personal observation i think there's a kind of a literacy challenge as the general public tries to get it, get its arms around what makes sense for agriculture and you know uh, we, that doesn't mean we should necessarily believe everything we're told uh, about what farmers need or they don't need, but uh, it is a little bit our responsibility if we're going to be critical and evaluate programs to really understand what it takes to grow these crops and, and what is the risk profile. Now, I think it's safe to say farming is a lot riskier than driving a truck or in you know, lots of other occupations, but and it is food, after all, that we're talking about. So I got some serious skin in the game. I want to be—I want American farmers to be successful. But you know, if you admit that, that doesn't mean you write them a blank check either. And so, when we find out that there's a thing called crop insurance that the federal government has some role in, we might say, "Well, that's a good thing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of that. I, I, we should have uh, uh, crop insurance for farmers. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's good." But then when you say, "Well," the government subsidizes over 60% of the cost of crop insurance, and it does so for every farmer, no matter whether they're big, small, or in between, it seems to me we can step back from that and say, okay, you know, crop insurance, yes, but 60% plus? How come it's so big? And how come, you know, this guy that would seem to have a lot of financial resources is getting just as much of a premium subsidy as maybe a smaller guy. Socially, is that really where we're at? Are we comfortable with that? That, to me, is a very fair conversation. But to just say across the board, you know, we shouldn't be subsidizing agriculture, I think misses the point that, yeah, this is a risky deal, and, yeah, it's food. I have a self-interest in making sure that works.
2: Andrew, thanks so much. I I hope we'll be able to have you back again soon because I have uh, just as many unanswered questions as I asked. It was really great chatting with you.
3: Well, my pleasure.
2: Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Farm Report. This, like all 35 of our weekly programs, are available uh, on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. You can also find us on iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. We are member-supported, so if you believe in our work and want to support what we do, please click that Donate tab on the website and become a member today. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned in.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website,